Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode 189 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. I'm your host, Alison Colley. I'm an employment solicitor and HR specialist, and I run the firm Real Employment Law Advice, where together with my colleagues, we provide everyday advice and assistance to both employers and employees on all aspects of employment law, including representation in the Employment Tribunal. By the time this episode goes out, we'll be just about to undertake the bank holiday weekend. So for those of you who listen right as the episode is published, then happy Easter. And I hope you're having a good long bank holiday weekend. Now, in this week's episode, I'm going to carry on a bit of a theme from last week, covering off some everyday topics, but things that are often overlooked. So this week, I'm going to be talking about recruitment and recruitment processes. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this week's featured content. So as I said, I'm going to be talking about recruitment and the recruitment process in this episode of the podcast. I'm not talking to you about how to find the best candidates and all of that sort of thing, but rather the kind of legal and practical process of how you do it. And I thought following on from the probation podcast I did last episode, this might be helpful. As again, as I said, it's one of those topics that people kind of launch into, um, you have a process in place, whether it's written down or not, and maybe you haven't really thought about it for a while. So hopefully this will be some food for thought. So I want to talk about why it's important to get the process right. Obviously, getting the recruitment process and procedures right is important because you want to avoid legal risk, which I'll talk about again in a moment. And you obviously want to avoid any reputational risk. So you don't want people to think badly about your particular business because of the way you've handled a recruitment process. But it's also important, obviously, to get the right candidate for the job role and having the correct paperwork and selection criteria in place will really help you to get the right candidate, regardless of who is undertaking the recruitment exercise within your organisation. It also helps you to save time and resources, so avoids wasting time and resources on a recruitment process that doesn't go anywhere. And of course, remembering that Hopefully you're going to find somebody who wants to work in your organisation or your business and they're going to be working with you in the long term. So it sets the tone of your relationship with them if you are professional and manage the recruitment process well. So those are the reasons why I think you should be thinking purposefully about how you deal with recruitment in your organisation or business. So I mentioned there one of the things that you need to consider being legal risks. And of course, it's important to understand that under the Equality Act, you have a duty of care and a potential liability in relation to those people who apply for jobs in your organisation. So under the Equality Act, an employer must not discriminate against or victimise a person in the arrangements that they make for deciding whom to offer employment, the terms on which employment is offered or by not offering them employment. And in relation to employment, you mustn't harass a person who has applied for employment as well. And importantly, I think to note on this, 
particularly for those people who work in HR and who may be involved in the recruitment process, and for managers, of course, is that you can be individually liable for discrimination under the Equality Act in relation to your handling of a recruitment process or your decision as to who you offer a job to. So not only does the company have potential liability, but you could have individual liability yourself. And there have been some cases in the past where employers have been taken to the employment tribunal by somebody who has taken issue over the content of their advert, for example, for the job role. So somebody who hasn't even applied for the job role, but has seen the advertisement and has identified that it discriminates or victimises them and has taken a claim. So it's really important to note that anybody who is potentially looking at a job with you could have rights under the Equality Act. Now, there's no need to be scared about this, of course. It's just to be mindful that this is an issue. And of course, how you approach the recruitment process should be fair and reasonable anyway, but keeping in mind the potential risks under the Equality Act. I'll just throw in here about the protected characteristics. So you have to be mindful that somebody who has a protected characteristic may have additional protection under the Equality Act and may be able to bring a claim that they've been discriminated against in the recruitment process. So just to recap for those of you who may not remember them, because I don't always remember everyone I have to say, they are age, race, religion or belief, gender, gender reassignment, disability, marriage and civil partnerships, sexual orientation and pregnancy and maternity. One thing that's often overlooked by businesses when they're doing their recruitment exercise is in relation to the arrangements that you make for deciding who to offer employment. So how you deal with the application process and the interview process. If somebody has a disability, then you are required to look at your process to make sure that it does not discriminate against somebody and doesn't put them at a detriment compared to somebody who doesn't have a disability in applying. This is particularly important if you have some form of test involved or something that may mean that a disabled person is um, unable to apply or is going to score lower than somebody who doesn't have a disability. So what is best practice in the recruitment process? Well, it's fairly simple if you ask me. The first thing is you need to have a fair process in place. And unless you have recruitment centralised, where you just have one or two people who are managing the recruitment process, it's important, in my view, to have something written down and to provide a minimum level of training on those people who are going to be, for example, sifting applications, looking at CVs or who may be doing interviews so that they understand what's required of them and as, as a very minimum what the Equality Act says about the obligations in the recruitment process. The second thing is to have objective criteria by which to select candidates. If you're lucky enough to have a lot of people applying, then you need to consider how you're going to narrow down that list of candidates for a job role. And are you going to do uh, an initial sift and then a second sift? Or are you just going to do one and how are you going to score that? And then if you're going to do an interview, how is that going to be scored as well? Um, Making sure that you have something objective in there. 
that's tied to and linked to the job role and what you require in terms of skills and experience and specification of the person. And then finally, best practice means you have good record keeping. Oftentimes I will see situations where employers have made a decision about whom they want to employ and when it comes to asking them how they've reached that decision they can tell you how they've thought about it and their thought process but they haven't actually written it down anywhere and this is important in case somebody is unhappy by the fact that they didn't get the job and then ask for either feedback or questions the validity of the decision or even alleges discrimination. So it's really important that even if you decide, well, we don't actually need a criteria, we can't score this role. If you are making a decision about which person gets the job and which person doesn't, that you have written down somewhere how you've reached that decision. Now, things to avoid in the recruitment process. I would strongly recommend against doing any online research into a candidate before you make a decision on whom to offer the job to. This is because it can lead you to making decisions based on feelings or other criteria that could potentially be questioned later on and may be unfair. So I would avoid it completely. I think the only exception to that would be LinkedIn because it's a professional forum and people put their professional profile on there and there's an expectation that it's openly public. Um, I would say you could probably look somebody up on LinkedIn before deciding on whom to offer a job role to. But I certainly wouldn't Google them or do anything like that until you've made your decision on who you're going to offer the job to. Now, one of the things that you could have as part of your vetting after you've made an offer is to do online searches. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you're transparent. And if you find something online that you're unhappy about and you decide to withdraw the offer of employment, that you recognise that you may have to tell the individual exactly why you've decided to remove the offer of employment. I certainly think that there is merit in undertaking a search on somebody after you've made an offer of employment. But what you should be careful about is actually looking up and seeing if they have made any previous employment tribunal claims. Of course, there is now the availability to access uh, employment tribunal judgments fairly easily. And I have heard of employers doing this. I certainly wouldn't recommend you do this because obviously if you then see that they've pursued a claim against their employer in relation to something related to a protected characteristic and that alters your opinion on them, you could then be accused of potentially victimising them later on. So I would definitely avoid that. Um, The next thing to avoid is of course making assumptions. Going into the interview with an assumption about somebody, I would keep an open mind at all times. And then the other thing is making a decision based on subjective criteria. Again, that's where having the criteria in place that's based around objective criteria that's linked to the role, which will really help you to avoid that. And then finally, I think things to avoid is choosing somebody for the role because they're like you. It's really easy to build a team around yourself who are all the same. Everybody looks the same. 
Um, but I would try to build in some diversity and new ideas and new thoughts within your team. So again, that's where having good written criteria will help you to steer your thoughts on a candidate based on their skills and experience and their match to the job role versus their fit within the team. Of course, understanding that being somebody who would fit within the team is important, but the weighting that you apply to that, in my view, should be fairly low. So if you don't already have a process in place, or if you do and you're looking at overhauling it, what's the kind of things that you should include? Well, I think you should have a checklist for each time you go for a recruitment exercise. And I think that should include identifying the vacancy and then obtaining authorization if you need to for the recruitment exercise. Drafting the job description or the job specification and then deciding on your method for applications to be received. I think people are steering away from application forms. It's less likely to be used aside from, I think, you know, civil service type job roles where I think they still stick with the application form for them. I tend to see now most businesses are looking for people to provide a cover letter and a CV or just a CV. But you need to decide on that based on what you're actually looking to achieve. Then creating the advertisement wording for the role. So after you've decided on the job description and specification, I think that's when the the advert comes after that, actually. Then decide on where to advertise the vacancy. In this current time where there are a shortage of good candidates and lots of people looking for the same people in the same pool, I think it's important to think purposefully about where you advertise, who you're trying to attract, where would they likely to be hanging out, where where are you going to find those people? Because it may be that you're looking for somebody who isn't actively looking for a job role, so just posting it on the normal job boards might not be enough, you might have to think slightly differently about where you advertise. Then at that point, I would decide on the criteria for shortlisting candidates for interview. So are you going, how are you going to sift them? Are you going to score them? Are you going to do it on some criteria based on qualifications or experience? And then decide what you do there. And then from there, once you've scored them, invite them, the shortlist to an interview. And then of course, deciding on the criteria you're going to use and how you're going to select people following the interview. And it may be that you have psychometric testing or some other type of testing involved in there somewhere, or you might have an initial interview and then a second interview, or you might require them to give a presentation. However, you're going to go about it, making sure that you have a criteria in place to be able to score and assess the candidates in a fair and reasonable way. And then once you've found your candidate or candidates that you want to offer a job to, then at that point in time, you may need to obtain authorization to actually make the offer or get a second opinion. And then you would create the job offer and send them the details to the successful candidate. Once the successful candidate has been notified, I think you should be thinking about notifying those unsuccessful applicants. Now, it may be that you have already notified all of those people who were taken out of the SIF stage before interview which is the right thing to do but then you might have interviewed 
one or two people and you've gone with a stronger candidate but if they don't accept the job you might want to offer it to the next person so think about when you're going to tell the unsuccessful person or persons that they haven't got the job and of course I recommend that you have in place a recruitment privacy notice which sets out the data that you hold about candidates and people who apply for job roles how long you keep it for and what you keep it for. Now you may want to send a copy to each person who applies for a job or it may be simpler to refer to a link on your website or to a document or a pdf when you notify them that they've been unsuccessful. It's just important that they understand how you're holding their data and that you also put in place a process for how you dispose of that data and when. My advice in relation to this is to diarise, to dispose of confidentially, of course, any information about candidates six months after the decision has been made about the person you've offered the job to. The reason I say six months is because there is a three-month time limit to bring a claim in the Employment Tribunal in relation to discrimination. And generally, if someone's going to do that, you would have heard within six months of the decision to offer the job to somebody whether or not you're going to have a claim against you and therefore after six months you don't actually need to retain any of that information about the individuals who have applied for a job role with you and I also think under the GDPR rules it might be difficult for you to justify holding that information for any longer anyway. So once you're at the stage where you have been through the recruitment process you've done your selection criteria, you've decided on your candidate, you've notified those people who are unsuccessful, then you need to make the offer. Now I would always make the offer subject to acceptable references and or subject to right to work and ID checks or any other checks or verification that you need. If it's a job role that requires a certain qualification or they need to have a DBS check in order to be suitable for the job role then of course you would make the job offer dependent on those all coming back clear. In the job offer I recommend that you state that any decision on the suitability of the candidate or the suitability of the references received is at your discretion because I've seen in the past where somebody's been offered a job subject to references, the references come back and they're not exactly bad but they are something in them is a bit worrying or the employer's decided actually based on that information I've decided not to proceed with offering you the job. It's important there to have in the letter that it's at your discretion because in the case I can recall uh, what happened was the individual was complaining that there wasn't anything wrong with the reference and as far as they were concerned it was satisfactory as set out in the offer letter. So it's important to make sure that you note that in there in case that happens. it was It's quite rare that that happens, I have to say, but in case it does happen. And then my recommendation is that the employment contract is issued after the individual has satisfied all your pre-employment checks, but before they start employment with you. Now, equally important is to make sure you have your processes and procedures in place for when somebody starts work for you. So after you've made the offer, you might have a period of time where they've accepted, you're doing your checks and then they're giving notice to their current employer and things might go quiet for a while where you're not actually in communication with the candidate. 
But I recommend that wherever possible, if there is a long notice period, you do maintain contact with them. If there's information that you can share with them that isn't of a confidential nature, you know, such as staff newsletters or that sort of thing, it's a good time to start doing that to give them a flavour of your business and how things will be when they start. You can start getting ready the induction process for them and preparing a checklist for the kind of things you need to talk through with them when they start. Get in place any training that's needed. Do they need to have any external training that you need to book? Is there any internal training? Is there somebody's diary you need to book out? So to make sure that they are available to train them as quickly as possible after they start work. If you haven't already completed the job description, make sure that that's completed and a copy is provided to the individual. And arrange, of course, all the email and IT access that they need to access your systems and any uniform or any equipment, make sure you've got everything in place. The last thing you want is to spend a lot of time and effort trying to recruit someone and then on their first day they don't have a desk or a chair or they don't have a computer or you can't access the systems because you haven't planned in advance. It doesn't look very good for you, it doesn't set the tone for the relationship very well. So I would make sure that you've got those in place and you have a system for ensuring like even just a tick sheet, what does everybody who starts with us need and just go through that. And then finally, one of my top tips is to phone them before they start at least once. Um, So as I say, you might have a period of time where you're not in contact with them, you know, maybe a week or two out from them starting. Might be good just to give them a quick call and touch base with them, make sure they're okay, ask if they've got any questions, that sort of thing. And then I would either send them a text message or give them a call the day before they're due to start just to say look want to make sure you're okay you know where you're going you know where to park you know what to wear all of that sort of thing. I was training some managers recently and we were talking about things like dress code and actually whether there's a process in place for informing new members of staff before they start what the dress code is and we identified that potentially people were starting completely unaware of what they were expected to wear and then some managers were embarrassed to say anything and so it just carried on um so again that's the time in which you say this is the office attire um we look forward to seeing you that kind of thing because I know if I was starting a new job and I was thinking about getting ready for my first day and I didn't already know what the I hadn't been explained what the expectations were those are the kind of things I would be thinking about and potentially worried about before I started so again it will just set you apart from any other employers just doing that because not many people do it it's so easy quick to do and um, goes a long way with new starters I have to say the other thing I recommend is having a gift or a card or something in place for when they start I know within my firm we tend to send a card saying welcome to the team and you know maybe some flowers or chocolate or a bottle of wine or something depending on what they like so that that's there for them on the first day. The other thing I did for one of my new starters was when they were in their notice period so we knew they were coming to work for us but hadn't yet started it was their birthday so I sent them a birthday card Um, so they weren't even an employee yet but I had all their information so I knew it was her birthday so I made sure I sent her a birthday card before she started. It's just those small things again easy to do don't cost very much But take thought and effort and they do mean a lot to people. So just a few ideas there for you. 
So finally, just to wrap up on what I've talked about in this episode, the main things to take away from this are that you should have in place a fair and reasonable process for dealing with recruitment. You should have an objective criteria that you use to select a candidate and you should make sure that you keep good written records of how you've made your decision. If you would like any help with this or you have any questions or would like any advice or would like someone to put together a process for you and criteria, they're all things that myself and my team can help with. We offer advice and support to both employers and employees on all aspects of employment law, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Before I sign off, I just have one final plea for you. I've mentioned this before, but I'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps in terms of visibility and showing the podcast to other people if it's got good reviews and other people are liking it. So if you like the podcast and you find value in it, I'd be grateful if you could leave a review or a rating. I hope you have a fantastic Easter weekend if you're listening to it around Easter and otherwise I hope you have a fantastic week ahead and I look forward to speaking to you again in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.